everybody. I know this is my little Larry King phallic object that I was given by an interviewee actually recently. So it's very old school. It's lovely. It's very old school. I'm just referring folks to the little microphone that is on a tripod stand that separates me from Kira Haglund. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah. Kira? Great. Who has graciously entered the pod today. So hello everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and you can follow my adventures such as they are at tobymiller.org. Kira is not quite sure why she's here and why she's agreed to speak to me. So we have to establish that in order to be happily lunching and chatting away. So she is here because uh, another victim of the pod is a friend of hers, uh, namely Julie Nalon. And Julie is somebody who did a fantastic interview with me in a very nice bar uh, with her boyfriend in attendance but hovering genteelly about her work. And Julie's work is as a professional organiser. She was talking about what it's like being an organiser and all the rest of it. So what's the point of Kira's being here? Well, Julie recommended you to me because your work is something that is relevant to some of the things that we talk about on the pod, which are normally interviews with people who are writers, intellectuals, Mm. artists, whatever they might be. And you are a yoga instructor, amongst other things, and we haven't had somebody like that on the pod so far. The pod is listened to not by vast numbers of people, but actually normally 50 countries a week uh, are represented in our little net, uh, including parts of India. Uh Uh, And, uh, you know, although it is a select group of listeners, it's very international. Maybe 50% of listeners are based here in the US, but the other 50% are in 49 other countries. So an important thing in the discussions is to relativize local references mm-hmm. or contextualize them for folks from elsewhere. Sure. And a lot of people are not English as first language listeners to them. Okay. Okay. Right. So sometimes that means you might interrupt me or I might interrupt you if we start talking about things in a way that uses acronyms that we know here in the US but may not be completely legible elsewhere. Does that make My sense? My street slang comes out. Yeah, no exactly. Problem. When your <laughs> your gutter origins overdetermine our conversation, and they have to be contextualised, and the same with mine. Yeah. So maybe Kira, you could tell us a little bit about teaching yoga, doing yoga here in the US, and what that means. Because I should say for people that this is now suddenly, since we started mm-hmm. corresponding, a hot topic because of the New York Times article. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I forgot about that article. Um, it was so silly. Um, the article you're referring to, is, and I believe it's the online version, was like how yoga can wreck your body, and which um, nice time. Yeah, it was a great. I think it had something a little bit more civilized in in the actual Times itself, but online that was the title it took, um, which I, I find to be silly. And the whole yoga community, at least out here, is a little bit up in arms over. Is that um, so? Yeah, yeah, yeah there, there have been a lot of responses to it. Um, although, you know, I think it is a good point of. It just represents what needs to start changing in the yoga community, at least how it's being practiced here. Because anything, when it becomes Americanized, becomes, um, it's basically goes on steroids. It goes over the top, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and whether it's the consumption of or the practice of, you know, it, it just goes over the top with it. I remember when tennis suddenly became very big in the US in the early 70s, yeah. and absolutely everybody, people abandoned their right. swimming pools, and everyone took up tennis and had a coach. Sales of white tennis shoes and white outfits 
blossomed fancy yeah. you know country clubs that didn't want Jews or people of color anywhere near them suddenly expanded their number of courts the whole nine yeah 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 um, it's you know I think it it's a fad it's um, hopefully a a fad that will stay around for a little while because I think it is really helpful. Right. Um, but they should. I believe it was like in 2008 the numbers came out that you know it's like a five billion dollar industry and with like 20 million people practicing and another 18 million really interested in it. Um, and I don't know if that was just in the U.S. or that must. I think that was just in the U.S. In those the figures. US. Or whatever. When this article came out, mm-hmm. The Guardian, which is one of the big daily newspapers in the U.K very popular online in the US, ran a series of stories about the article. Hmm. So my sense is that this has become some kind of international debate. I'm not here to ask to to get you to defend yoga, but I'm interested in the context of that context and in what you say about being on steroids and that being a problem. Can you expand on that a little bit, Kira? Yeah, um, I think just to start with, anything we do, if it's not done with some form of mindfulness, can be detrimental to your well-being. You know, walking across the street with, you know, while you know, focusing only on your iPhone is going to get you <laughs> run over, which I've almost experienced. You know, eating too much. You know, like anything can be unhealthy, like when it's when it's excessive, and that's the same thing with yoga. I mean, especially if the physical form is mostly what people are talking about. Yoga is a obviously so many um, it's, it's, it's a vast practice and it's for the mind it's for the body it's for the spirit it's for um, concentration you know uh, it's for devotion but in the way or at least the form that they're the debates taking it's all about like physical body and like and how um, pushing um, trying to get like the, the fanciest tricks it becomes a bit more like gymnastics meets exercise and that's not appropriate for everyone no, so I'm glad there you know I'm glad the discussion has been raised because it just makes people look and say like okay so what is being taught and and who's and who's doing the teaching who's legitimate in the field for it um, I know that there are some teachers who don't have a lot of qualifications who become very popular because it becomes a hard class whatever that may be it means it makes people sweat it makes people sore um, and that's not necessarily the best for their health. So this so. is almost like the NFL and there's no gain without pain, isn't it? Yeah. It becomes that sort of US sportification on steroids, let's it, say. It definitely can. And, you know, and I mean, we even have terms like power yoga. And I actually think power yoga system is, is beautiful and brilliant in many, and for, for what it offers. But um, our American interpretation of all of this is, is a lot about like the goal. <laughs> which is, you know, uh, fundamentally contradictory to what yoga is. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that, the philosophy of yoga, being opposed to a goal? Yeah, um, it depends on, like, what system. Uh, yoga means to yoke in Sanskrit. The hatha um, is the unit. Hatha yoga is, like, a universal umbrella of kind of, like, the philosophy, and it's just the hot, it's the sun, the moon, and it's the yoking of the sun and the moon, linear, or um, lunar, solar energies masculine feminine and feminine energies coming together so um, it's it's really about and let's see the classical system that I kind of subscribe to was codified by um, a yogi named Patanjali though it could have been um, a collection of works over many years that is Patanjali or it could have been one person it's not quite known and about the second century BC um, put together the sutras there's like short aphorisms like saying what yoga is and it basically says yoga is the calming of the fluctuations of the mind when the mind's calmed you can see the true self and when the mind's not calm it's, it's not true 
Um, and the true self right now wants to order lunch. Yeah, yeah the true self is hungry. <laughs> All right. I said we're going to interrupt the uh, conversation. No, no it's you're fine. Good. You're becoming comfortable. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. Okay, good. I'm going to have the bisque, please. The tomato bisque. Tomato bisque. C-I-A, N-S-A, all kind of Say it's another. got to be careful with this gentleman. He's been here before. We have a history This is the owner. He knows all about this device. How are you? Hi. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Nice to meet you. I know. I got roped into this. I don't know how. At least you go on it. I'm vegetarian. Is it possible to have the dandelion bean salad minus the bacon? Of course. Bags, bags okay, though? The eggs are fine, yeah. May I also have water without ice, please? Sure. Thank you. Do you want uh, just flat water, sparkling water? Tap water, Tap whatever's water. there. It's fine. Right. <laughs> and I'd like to, have you got a Pinot Grigio? We do. A glass of that? Sure. Do you want else? I wish, I can't right now. All right. Thank you. I made the mistake of combining beer and painkillers the other day. <laughs> now, in, when, I quite like reading hard-boiled crime fiction. Uh-huh. And when the detective has a sore head or any other body part after being beaten up and dumped somewhere and is recovering, she or he, normally he, takes painkillers and booze together and feels great. It's such a bad idea. I can't believe this. I, can't, I missed the whole drug phase for whatever reason. I was in my repressed, like, spiritual seeking phase through, like, the 20s and stuff. And, and so I kind of just, I, I bypassed the drug phase for better or for worse. And now, you know, after getting my wisdom teeth pulled and feeling, like, the benefits of it, it's fun. No, it sure is. It sure is. No, I, I had... Uh, it's not clarity of mind. The drugs that the dentists give you nowadays are a lot better than they used to be. They're immensely pleasurable. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. But anyway, getting back to Serenity Hill from BC. Yeah, it's unification of self is basically the the underlying philosophy. Whatever you, I guess that's the joining underlying philosophy of all the different sects of yoga. Um, And uh, Patanjali, who I was talking about before, said that there is an eight limb path of getting there. An eight-limb mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called the Ashtaanga, so the eight-limb path. Um, and the yamas and the niyamas are kind of like the ethical principles. You know, some people say it's it's really dogmatic. I personally don't see it as such, but um, the first principle is ahimsa and it's nonviolence, and you're not allowed to hurt yourself in your mind or in your body. So it's teaching you to do that. The second one is like satya, so truth. And you have to be honest about, for me, this is what I tell all my students, like, you got to be honest. You can't lie to yourself in here. If something hurts, you've got to honor it. If you know you're not showing up and you realize it, you got to honor it and step in. So um, that those are like two of the principles that really kind of resonate for me. And it's all about just finding some clarity and truth from inside out. Now, you have a fantastic website. It's kirahagland.com. Oh, yes. It's really, really good. Thank you. Uh, and my web designer will love to hear that. Well, Jenny Lenitka. <laughs> big shout out to her. Yeah, yeah, she's great. On that site, it mentions that you have a background in cultural anthropology mm-hmm. and in dance and extensive time training in India with mm-hmm. experts in this field, yeah. if I can put it that way. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how that has led you towards what you're doing today? Yeah, you know, I'm constantly just blown away by the synchronicity of things and like when you can be patient enough to see how one step really leads to the next. Um, all of the missteps included in that process. But, um, you know, danced most of my life, really a physical, physical kid. Um, 
really just fascinated by people, humanity, culture. That's why I probably got into anthropology and ended up in Nepal, just wanting to get to know the country a little bit better because I thought I was going to do PhD work in the country. So I thought I'll go over there. I taught English there um, after I graduated, or graduated undergrad. And I ended up being a, a cardio hip-hop aerobics instructor in Kathmandu. Right. <laughs> And so I, I was there. How was their pronunciation of that? The people, your students in of English. Fantastic, <laughs> actually. And I mean, that's the one thing that like meshes people together in um, Nepal and India is like Bollywood is fantastic for that. Like they're so like I had aunties and older guys in my class and younger people and expats and and it became really popular. And so you know, after this one class where literally I had like an old like a friend of mine's older auntie like freaking on the floor. She, and sweaty and like really fun class and afterwards I saw her sitting there and doing some um, breathing exercises and just asked her about it and she's like well I'm this... trying to survive after you almost fucking killed me <laughs> <laughs> she's a little overweight and, 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 you know and like and, uh, yeah breathing exercises this is lying on the ground desperately trying to get some oxygen in your lungs and asked her about it, and I, I had done some physical yoga through the dance company I was in in college, so I knew the, like some of the physical aspects of it, but I never really had been introduced to anything else. And she said, yeah. "Oh, this is this is pranayama. This is um, breath control work." So why don't you try it? And I sorry, sorry, what work? Breath control. Breath work. control. Work. Prana yeah. or chi or you know the the life force that's said to come in on the breath, and then um, so and that's one of the limbs of Patanjali. Uh -huh. right? So there's asana and pranayama. Asana is the physical posture. Pranayama is the breath work. Um, and I figured if she had just succumbed to my yoga class, or my cardio hip-hop aerobics class, <laughs> like, I could at least humor her and do it and try it, and I did, and it was incredible. And it's just like all of a sudden I felt calm, and for somebody who had a hard time like regulating my emotions and my affect, being like really sensitive, kind of like artistic type, it felt so grounding and good, and that kind of led me to meditation. Um, which led me to like one of my first real yoga classes and I remember standing in tree pose and just being in feeling both myself and having this like universal kind of like awareness of what was happening around me. Thank you. And just being like I want to know more about it. So just by being um, thank you touching into the physical experience of it or the sensory experience of like this calm and this groundedness as well as this kind of like universal kind of connection thing. I, I dove into a teacher training thinking, like, I just want to learn more. And from the teacher training, I never thought I'd be a yoga teacher. Thank you very much. Um, I ended up with... We can give you this, actually, if that's okay. Thank you. From the training, this was about the time that I had applied for Salud. Applied for a scholarship through the Rotary Foundation, an ambassadorial scholarship, and that yes. took me back to India, looking at the um, impacts of globalization on performing arts. And so, as I was getting into yoga, I just expanded that uh, research to include like the holistic arts as well. So I got to study yoga and dance in South India for about a year and a half, two years. Um, at which time I was still very much, you know, positioned on the outskirts of the yoga community, being like, no, no, I'm just researching. I'm not really a yoga person. I don't. I'm not really a hippie. You know, like I'm like really trying to resist the whole stereotype and just. Um, I'm failing abysmally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was waking up at five in the morning to study with my teacher and, and every day for months. And um, next thing you know, I'm in L.A. teaching yoga. <laughs> and that's where I am now. Wow.
Yeah, and I mean, that's led me actually to where I am. I'm, I don't know if Julie told you, but I'm in um, a grad program right now to get my social work master's. I don't think I knew that, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm down at USC, and I'm working on my master's in That's social work. University of Southern California, the popular name, the technical name is University of Spoiled Children. <laughs> this doesn't apply to here, obviously. I've graduated from that child group, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's quite a renowned uh, social work program, isn't it? Yeah. Quite well known. Yeah. That's what I hear. We'll yet to see, but... Are you, so you're entering that? Um, I'm in my second semester. Oh, you, you're, Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Sandalias. I love it. Enjoy. Oh, that looks delicious. One day when I can chew. Yeah, one day when you can chew. Are the breads no good for you? No, you're welcome to it. Sorry. That's fine. Uh, I should say, Kira is in recovery from having some of her sagacity removed, <laughs> specifically wisdom teeth, and all of those of us who have gone through this procedure can empathize with her. Thank you. She's a very brave soul for being with us today, through the pain. <laughs> Strong spirit. So is there a connection between the yoga interest and the social work interest at all? Yeah, a, a direct connection actually. Um, in Los Angeles, I mean, I've been teaching in, in West LA, which is a little bit of the belly of the beast of the yoga community in, in the US. Yeah. Um, it's brilliant. I, I love the community there. Uh, but it, it is very privileged. Um, so I've made a point to thank you. Made a point to extend this work out to communities or demographics that don't necessarily have access to it. Um, I worked at a shelter called Children of the Night, or volunteered there for about five years, and it's working with teenage prostitutes, and basically just offering yoga classes, and through that I realized like there was so much that they've experienced, like trauma-related, that I didn't quite know how to work with, that I knew that yoga was powerful and helpful, but they, they didn't necessarily need all, as, you know, like what aspects should should be or are pertinent to them. Um, that got me into doing trauma resolution work. So I work with PTSD and was trained as um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, and was trained as a somatic therapist through somatic experiencing that works directly, like with the nervous system, to resolve trauma or to um, kind of renegotiate how our bodies react to trauma. I did about a three-year program, and I realized I wanted a clinical background and also wanted a, an outlet to get all of the somatic work, the yoga, the mindfulness, the somatic experiencing. I wanted to be able to work in, um, directly with the community a little bit more. So that's how it all happened. On your website, I read that you work with homeless people. Yeah. Um, I was working down here with, um, what's it called, uh, an organization right down in Skid Row. The name is escaping me right now, but they do they do great work. It's a nonprofit that works with homeless people. So uh, we are in downtown Los Angeles at this time. We're talking in a place called Artisan House, where I've done one of these podcasts before, and we're very close to what is known as Skid Row, which is the largest home to the homeless in the United States, supposedly, and I can well believe it. Um, this is a place that is going through, on an almost daily basis, very powerful and violent gentrification, uh, such that a place that not unlike, say, Detroit, was denuded of urban life through suburbanization, but unlike Detroit, didn't see 
businesses leave, so office blocks remain full. And it's had various full so-called dawns of yuppification, but now it's, it's really happening. And so cheek by jowl, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people and street sex workers with um, light-skinned, wealthier, arty types who are on, who can afford the medication they need, unlike these other folks. So this is a very, of all the difficult times, perhaps the most difficult time to be a homeless person on Skid Row, just to give some context to yeah. listeners. And, and tell us about the kinds of things that yoga and, and the somatic therapy that you do can offer to A, sex workers, B, homeless people. Are they different sorts of things from what they offer office workers or parents? Um. I guess yes and no. It all depends on our own personal experience and how we come to it. And it's, you know, I think what yoga offers not only sex workers or at-risk teens or homeless people is the same thing that it would offer you and I who have seemingly more stable lives, you know. Seemingly. Um, seemingly, right? You never know what's underneath the surface. It's an opportunity to feel safe inside of your own body an opportunity to um, have a little bit more control over your own body, um, your nervous system, your affects, your, your emotions, um, your response to the outside world, and also um, a capacity, once you feel that safety and a sense of like grounding and well-being, then you have more capacity to let go and expand your boundaries of like letting in um, Letting in life, because life isn't easy all the time. Like sometimes it's really great, and sometimes it's really hard, and that overwhelms people. So it's basically expanding our capacity to be. So yeah, I think that it kind of offers all of the same thing. It depending on the demographic, um, depending on who's in your room, is going to be like what what you introduce first, second, and third kind of. Um, so like with a sex worker that I definitely would establish safe boundaries. I guess I would do that, you know, to be honest, I would do that with everyone. It's making sure everyone feels safe and resourced and contained before you, before you approach them, before you, got, you know, before you touch them, before um, you introduce like breath work that can be really powerful for their nervous systems. Not everybody wants to do breath work right away or is going to be able to. So. And tell us what their responses are. Uh, because, you know, you were talking about the west side of Los Angeles being, a, in general, a wealthy and privileged area. Boy, that tomato beast smells fabulous. Yeah, it's lovely. Would you like to try it? No, thanks. Okay. It just looks amazing. Uh, and smells even better. <laughs> uh, a place of great privilege. Yeah. So, does yoga have a connotation for people living on the street and sex workers of privilege? Or do you not have to get through that? Yeah, of course it does. You know, I'm about to go to New York tomorrow, actually, to go lead a training for yoga for those at risk. And it's about yoga and trauma and working with um, different populations that don't necessarily have it. And one of the things that I and other people who do this work come, come up against is, like, yoga's just for white people. Yo you know, yoga's for just for, like, wealthy people. And, it, yeah, there, there is definitely a connotation of privilege that comes with it. And so just kind of like meeting those and saying, well, yoga actually came from India, you know, it came from people that have brown skin and dark skin and, and um, it doesn't really belong to everyone. And like, this is, this is our work now is to pass it on to you because it's basically, it's just tools of, um, of empowerment, 
you know, it's not me giving or teaching somebody to be stronger in themselves. It's just saying, here are these tools. You get to work with it to find that for yourself. Yes. So yeah. you try to meet them where they are, as it were. Yeah. And you then try to offer them something where they don't have to buy the ideology. They have to buy, they have to be prepared to try out the toolkit. Yeah. Is that reasonable? Yeah. It's just adding some more tools to the toolkit. That's, yeah. that's a really good way. And, you know, it doesn't have to be dogmatic. I, I try to make mine as, um, as universal as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what about, do some of them then get interested in the ideas of serenity, personal exploration, harmony, and so on? Sure, I think everybody does. You know, you start to feel good and you have this experience inside of yourself that that something's good. And a lot of, a lot of people don't feel good often, which seems really simple, but it, it's so true. You know, one of the things I, I ask people is like, okay, and they, you know, like, look inside and, and see if there's a place that feels good and, or if there's a place that feels the least bad. Where is that? You know, can you find that? When you start to find that, I think that that naturally provokes a sense of curiosity about what else is there, you know, what's my meaning, what's my connection to people, but research, neuro, neurobiological research is showing that, like, mindfulness techniques, um, and yoga included in that, help expand, like, the prefrontal cortex's ability for, like, interpersonal, like, empathy, and the more we're able to empathize and, like, sense, sense somebody across the table from us or in the room with us, the more it expands, like, our sense of, like, meaning and being with each other and community. So it's you know this is, it's a small like individual like mic like micro agenda that I have about like here take these tools and see how it feels with you, but it, it's really connected to like a macro idea of like how, how do we make our communities like healthier? How, how do we make this like larger dysfunctional family of ours of LA of, of West LA of, of the US of like our globalized world and how do how do we come together and, and like make it a little bit more functional for all of us? It's community building. So, I kind of nerd out on this stuff. Nerd out? <laughs> yeah, I do. I've never, in all my, I've been living in the United States almost 20 years. I still don't really understand the difference between a nerd and a geek. <laughs> I don't either. You don't either? I okay. think it's the same. Okay. But a nerd you should do an interview some... on that. <laughs> but a nerd <laughs> is somebody who is really keen on, interested in a topic, and intellectualizes about it. And this is a term that gets applied to them in high school, I think. Is that right? I think so. This is, I'm not saying this in a silly, in a fun-making way. I'm genuinely trying to understand yeah. it and explain it to people outside yeah, the US. Yeah. Is that what a nerd, a nerd would, has thick glasses? I think that's a good summary. Yeah. yeah. And is actually interested in education. Yeah, and it's not necessarily the coolest thing to do, but... Right. Yeah. Got it. I think a geek has something to do with electronics more. I'm not sure. Oh, really? No, I don't know. Well, again, I'm... <laughs> when you figure it out, let me know so Just I can use it properly. <laughs> okay, so... Mm. I'm assuming that in your agenda, this is not necessarily about stopping the sex workers from doing sex work. No. Or getting the homeless people into homes. I'm sensing that it's something else that you're wanting from them. That I'm wanting from them. Yeah, that you, that you want them to gain something that's of value, rather than fix them, yeah, cure no, them. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. I don't think it's about fixing at all. And I think even you know now what I'm studying with the social work, it's all really about empowering somebody and helping people 
find more resiliency. And we're social beings. We can only do that in community with each other. So, yeah, I, what I hope that people can find is just a greater sense of safety, peace, and comfort within their own systems. Because if your system's hurting, you know, as I found out with my teeth, when, like when your whole head hurts, it's impossible to function. If your whole body aches, if you're afraid, if you have panic attacks, that you're like crippling panic attacks, you can't go out and get a job. You know, and if somebody's been traumatized from like years of, you know, chronic stress from, you know, molestation or from being on the streets and from violence or just even, you know, like shock trauma of natural disasters, if that gets stuck in the system, people's capacity to be in relationship with one another, you know, you can only go so deep and then you shut down and you push people away. And so mine and it's like try to open that give people the tools to open that up from inside out feel stronger and more resilient in themselves and then the, the then the other part happens you know or in conjunction with the other part of trying to find jobs or housing or just like um, a sense of of self or maybe it's just gaining you know like for sex workers maybe it's gaining mobilizing to gain their own um, the rights of protection you know from from the government Right. Yeah. Well, I want to take us into a slightly unusual environment now, which is the <laughs> debates that are ensuing ah. in the pre-selection of the Republican nominee for our president in 2012. To? No, here's my question. If someone were to say, do you do yoga to the Republican candidates? And one of them were to say yes, because they knew that it would come out anyway. What do you think that would do, politically? What would it signify, if anything? Would it signify the same thing that it does to the sex workers and homeless people you've been working with, namely white privilege? Or would it signify hippie craziness? What would it mean in that because these people talk about spirituality yeah. all the time in the context of their Christianity. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. I think, I'd like to think that it's not just, it would mean so many different things to so many different people. You know, I've had a close family member try to convince me that yoga is of the devil. She's very Catholic and say that's, you know, it's immoral and it's also really dangerous to your, to your health and to your being. And, and that's, that's her position. And then there are other people that's, that maybe would view it as being a progressive move and seeing like yoga is still belonging to, you know, the granola hippie types of the 60s or, um, you know, and other people seeing it as privilege and other people seeing it as, as being a bit more enlightened, you know, like, I, I, I don't know, I think it would mean a lot of different things to a lot of different... Yeah. It, it really does. It, it holds... Um, it holds so many different values within this, you know, even within the, the small community of West Los Angeles, you know, yoga represents so many different things. Different things. What about in India, where you've done a lot of study and so on, <laughs> what does it, you know, if you're in a high-tech capital like Bangalore, yeah. or, you know, an extraordinary example of mad modernity like Delhi, or you're in a so former leftist stronghold like Kerala. Yeah. What does it signify there, and what did you signify as a white American woman, yeah. dancer, anthropologist, yeah. doing this? Um, some friends of mine in Bangalore said, "We don't do yoga. That's what that's what our grandparents do." You know, like, <laughs> of course we don't. Uh, you can't plug it into the wall. 
No. We know they just did And um, I mean, there, there was a small little surge of popularity happening there. I don't, I don't quite know what like mainstream like kind of like younger culture is doing right now with it there are a couple of Bollywood actors and actresses that made it a bit popular for a while and of course like whatever Hollywood tends to do the rest of the world or globe tends to you know um, mimic in some ways so there was there was a bit of interest um, there definitely are some uh, there are a bunch of incredible ashrams there are some very devout families but it, it kind of belongs to um, it seems in some ways it belongs to more of a traditional culture in, in India or like the older generation. Um, and also, but then there are people like Sri Sri Ravi Shankar who are making it accessible. They're like saying like we, we can take it out, take it from the mountains and bring it back to the people. There have been movements to say like, here guys, go for it. Um, and just giving like tools, I guess. Sri Sri like offers concise, digestible pieces of yoga to get people like using it in their daily lives. Um, it's also really, it's normal that, you know, your mom or your grandmother would be, or grandfather would be doing either pranayama or asana daily. So it's not as weird as I think it was for a number of years in the States. Um, I think they see it... I, one of the projects I was working on in Mysore, where I was living for a while, was a, um, the effects of the, the expatriate yoga community in Mysore. And from what I found from, from a lot of my interviews, was that they, you know, they really appreciated the fact that this one particular um, teacher, uh, Sri K. Patabi Joyce, is the, the guru of um, Ashtanga Yoga. He just passed away last year, two years ago. Um, they really appreciated his um, shala or yoga studio being there because it brought more business and, and it was definitely developing communities but at the same time the yoga community stayed very insular and didn't really interact with the community outside of like shopping and um, now I think it's expanding I think they're getting into more community service and working with orphanages and stuff like that there so there's a little bit more interaction um, but I do think that a lot of the local residents were, they kind of thought we were a little crazy for coming over and, and paying so much money because um, to them there was it, it was a lot of money that he charged um, just a, a little silly and a little hokey in some ways so in one way like yoga still has this like cultural legitimacy and on the other hand it's still a source of, or it, it's now becoming more of a source of um, I, I guess I don't know the word for it it's just it's a bit maybe a, not hokey, but... Well, what you're describing here. to me sounds like what happens when you have sudden turbocharged capitalism. Yeah. Which is part of what India is experiencing. And yeah. That sudden rush of modernity is often going to leave such things behind because they're seen as antithetical to making money exactly. or to having and enjoying the splendors and fruits of wealth. My meditation teacher there is Narasimhaji, and he was um, Maharishi Manshogi's secretary for years and years and years. Right? And so, in transcendental meditation, and when I met him, he agreed to, to teach me and um, introduce me into into the system. And I remember him; he just giggled. <laughs> but we were talking about just this topic, and he's like, "You know, in in a number of years, we're going to have to go to the West to learn yoga." He's like, "It's leaving," and. Um, 
and also probably like we're gonna have to go over there to like learn how to use our technology you know it's, it's just like an exchange um, or the cycle of like information and spirituality is just kind of shifting a little bit and, and I think his um, also everything that you finish very nice yeah. thank you I think I'm fine thanks thanks he was insinuating that eventually that cycle will return to it. You know, as it was the birthplace, it leaves, it has to go out, India has to, to change and develop and transform, and then in the same way, it's going to come back in its own way and be reappropriated by, by their people. So, all those engineers that the Nehruvian revolution created in Bangalore are eventually going to be coming to West LA to find out how to adopt various positions. I'm sure plenty of people would argue with me on this front. I'm sure they would. <laughs> but I, there, there's a lot being taught here. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. It is. It is interesting. In the light of the controversy to which we alluded, and which I think could equally be applied to... Are you waiting for me? No, no, that's no, it. Oh, that's that's it. it. Yes, sir. Thank you, though. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Some dessert, maybe? Maybe? I'm good without it. You okay? Thank you, though. fine. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I'm very conscious, Kira. You've got to go in, in 10 minutes, so... But Thank you. Getting back to the controversy, um, and I wonder whether this might also apply to people who are trainers in gyms. Yeah. Where again, the steroid bubble world may well apply. What do you think might be an answer to these issues? The issues of overtraining, the unfortunate side of things. couple of ways I think to approach it you know one has to be from within the individual it really has to be like a, a, an internal desire needs to be cultivated to see where this stuff really came from you know and that might mean reading like the original text and seeing what what you agree with and what you disagree with um, it might mean just in, investing in some of the basic tenets like the ahimsa like like the um, just the idea of, of daily practice. There are a lot of teachers out there that don't practice. But they learn, they do it for a while, they teach, and, or, and then they go to teach and they don't really practice themselves. And like learning, just like that. I guess like enforcing the ethics a little bit more, just within them. Of the teachers? Yeah, of the teachers. Um, I think that there's efforts being made by like the larger governing body of the yoga alliance to try to like standardize some of the teaching and at first i was really opposed to it of like well the you know this information was handed down to me through my teachers like do i really need a certificate from somebody from this organization saying it but in some ways it does it standardizes like what should be taught and there, there needs to be like and this is where the states are actually doing a great job in comparison to some of the places you know studied in, in India. And just in terms of physiology, there's a really there's a lot of anatomy being stressed these days and kines, um, kinesiology being put out there. Just saying, if you're going to be doing this rigorous motion, you should really know what you know, like what's happening within the body. Mm. So I think that that's important if you're going to be teaching a physical practice. Um, so I guess a personal commitment to just like general ethics, like especially like relationships with teachers. That's where I think like therapy training or just like the idea of like what happens, the dynamics between teachers and students. Um, I mean, it's a pretty powerful dynamic. And even though it is a yoga class, most people 
go to a yoga class for some form of healing, whether it's for their body, for their mind. It's not just an exercise class. I think it has a different connotation still than just exercise and that it's not just for a good butt. I mean, some people go for it, but... Um, and, and when you're there and when people are in a context of healing, I think that needs to be taken with, with weight, you know, or, or handled with care. Taken with weight, removed from the butt, perhaps. Exactly. Now, what, <laughs> what is the Yoga Alliance? I've not heard of it, I must confess. Um, I should have a better answer for you than what I think I'm going to give. Uh, it's just a larger, uh, larger governing body started, don't know when it was started, probably in the 90s. Um, a bunch of yoga teachers kind of set up standards for like if you're going to have a certain training, what those trainings need to include. Um, it offers insurance, it offers um, guidelines for not only for the training but for um, how many hours students and, and pretend, potential teachers will need to like get their certificate. And you get a certification from them. So either like 200 hour, 300 hour trainings, 500 hour trainings, and then, yeah. yeah. So part of you, you're screwing your nose up partly out of... Partly out of not knowing, not knowing <laughs> a lot of what but like, governs my life. But this mixture that you have, it seems, of disdain for this project of certification, regulation, but also contradictorily or paradoxically, you see some value in it now. Is that right? You've got yeah. Mixed feelings. About I actually, I see, I see a lot of value in it. To be honest, you know, I see more value than not these days because it's so popular. And I think when something gets this big, it has to be regulated. And so, like, I appreciate the regulation. I do still think that, like, the, the um, please. So we lay some water for you. No, some I'm glass. okay. Thank you. Okay? Just, just the check. Thank you. Yeah. When. Um, when uh, yoga gets to be so large, mm -hmm. you were saying, perhaps yeah. it requires some self-regulation by exactly. organization. I do still feel like like the value of a true teacher, if you want to call it a guru or whatever, it is also incredibly valuable. And it's not just a training that has a certain number of hours dedicated to anatomy or to study or, you know, of literature. Is, is what makes, or is what transfer, transfers information and, and true wisdom. So I, I do think it's that relationship between a teacher and a student. And I do think that there's like an energetic component that, that can't be measured. You know, when you work with somebody that has, that has true like gravitas. You know? So yeah, I do think the fundamentals of just like safety need to be taught in general. The true, this like, um, and then hopefully you'll have a, a respect for for the craft, for the, the respect for like working with people at, at a truly deep level. Literally, we're working with nervous systems, we're working with hearts and minds, and that needs to be taken with like some guidance of ethics. So you know, I feel very blessed to have had some teachers who have like really instilled that to me. You know, but how did they do that? <laughs> you know, by modeling it, just by being around them, like good people. Um, that I implicitly trust um, and by by safely holding the space for me to, to keep saying like okay and go in and look at that and try and like go in and look at that and what is it what is this in you where is the truth in you and not, um, not judging whatever has, comes out you know it's just like yeah guiding me honestly so 
at some level this is about there being an inner truth that has to be attained, has to be explored, that's there within you. Is that Sounds right? so new agey. Well, <laughs> I am a yoga teacher. You are a yoga teacher. <laughs> Real branding, I guess, but is that is that a reasonable gloss on it from me? That somewhere within you can find the answers to your physical, physiological self through contemplation, meditation, examination, and so. I don't know, because I've never experienced it. But I, I think, I mean, I'm going, I'm like, I'm, I'm operating on some faith that, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, gained, I've gained a little bit of insight through all of this, that's for sure. But um, hopefully there's some hopefully there's some more answers deeper down. But yeah, I, I believe so. I also sense, and I realize you, you really got to hit the frog and toad yeah, road in a second. But for you, this is just as legitimate when it is a set of techniques rather than a guide to something else. So for those sex workers, for those homeless people? Even for the people just at the studios that I teach, a lot of times I do just offer techniques. Yeah, because I think that the yoga speaks for itself. You know, I mean, there's a cult of phenomenon of a cult of personality with teachers these days. And we so desperately, meaning we, you know, whether it's Americans, it's, I'm sure it exists outside of the country as well, our culture, but we so desperately want to put faith in other people and not in ourselves because taking... That, that's too much responsibility almost or liability or accountability and so we put it on to these other people and try to deify them whether it's politicians or it's teachers or yoga teachers or whatever and, and um, yeah I think the yoga just speaks for itself like my whole thing is like try to get out of the way as much as possible and I mean I know you know I'm called to speak in front of a room that doesn't speak back to me. So clearly I have, you know, like I, I work with my own ego and, and anybody else who chooses to do the same work like has a little bit of them that in them, I, I think, personally. So, but it's, it's always about like try to get out of the way and just let the yoga go through. Let Whether it's the breath, the movement, just like the resonance of our own systems, you know, work with each other. I mean, that speaks for itself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because on the one hand, you're there as a performer, which you're used to from being a dancer. On the other hand, you're there to allow things to happen, which is, speaks to your background in anthropology. But they all speak to a desire to help people in some way, uh, not necessarily to give them direction but to, as we were saying earlier, allow them to augment their toolboxes. Yeah, yeah. So Kira, thank you very much for joining Thanks. us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That was fun. It was really a pleasure and I'm sure the people will be gaining the benefit of your practice tomorrow in New York and elsewhere will really derive a lot of both pleasure and development. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Namaste.